Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be made sight. Um, Good morning, church, again. Let's join together in opening God's Word to the book of Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We're only going to be looking at a singular verse as we wrap up uh, this little summer series. Although, really, like I said Wednesday night, I'll be preaching from the book of Genesis to Revelation this morning as we consider... Uh, this topic of our pursuit of joy in the midst of suffering and missions. Um, that may seem like two random topics that don't really go together, and, and yet if you've been with us this summer, you know that we really have been seeking joy uh, as a pursuit of holiness, understanding that really the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of joy for the Christian are not antithetical to one another. They're not two um, different pursuits. For the Christian, they are the same, and we've been using John Piper's Desiring God, a modern classic, as kind of an outline and framework for how we're going to approach some of these topics. And so this morning, we are combining the last two topics of that book, and they are suffering and missions. And so if you found your place in God's Word in Colossians chapter 1, and you are able to do so, let me encourage you to stand for the reading of just this one verse this morning, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive right in and get uh, to work. Colossians 1 24, the Apostle Paul writes, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father in heaven, we come again to this, your holy word. Lord, to consider the great matters of this life, especially those perplexing ones like this, our suffering and joy. Well, we, we know much of these things separately, but how we bring them together, it's, it's often hard and perplexing. So we pray that you would be our teacher. You would be a guide to every soul and the captain of every life this morning, that each one who cries may know in those tears even more profoundly the joy and the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would direct every heart now to your holy temple, that we might hear the word of the Lord from your own mouth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I rejoice in my sufferings, says the Apostle Paul. And we respond with, is he crazy? Right? He must be mad. Obviously, who rejoices in sufferings. But we have to understand, listen, the, the, the biblical approach to trials appears to us naturally anyway to be nothing less than insane, doesn't it? He rejoices in his sufferings. And maybe you're the mindset, you think, well, the Apostle Paul is just getting exaggerated a little bit. He's, he's getting carried away. Uh, he's just on a, ram, or on a rant and he's just, he's just saying things for exaggeration, for effect. What about the rest of the Bible? In fact, what about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? He says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice 
and be exceedingly glad. James teaches us the same thing, doesn't he? In James chapter 1 verse 2, as brother Corey read, when he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The apostle Peter is of the same mind in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13, when he says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. All of this, by the way, isn't just theoretical teaching. It's not just rhetoric. How do I know that? Well, when you look at the book of Acts and you consider the behavior of the apostles, you discover that they actually practiced this joyful response to suffering. Look at a couple examples with me. And when the Jewish Sanhedrin flogged the apostles in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, we read these words. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Similarly, when, when Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, we read, what do we find them doing at midnight? Singing and rejoicing, praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. What is this? Is this madness? Are these people crazy? And listen, it's not just the Lord and the apostles who behave this way. For example, the author of the book of Hebrews reminds us, his, reminds his readers of a time when they, his readers, he says, had compassion on me in my chains. And, and get this from Hebrews chapter 10, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. There are many more examples that could be given, but I think the Apostle Paul well summarizes when he says that we glory in tribulations. We all do. Friends, we can't escape that this strange response to suffering that's taught right here in Colossians chapter 1 is the uniform teaching of the Bible on the subject. Now, if you're like me, you have to readily admit that this is not your response to suffering. It's not your standard response anyway. It's certainly not mine. Can I confess that to you this morning? Now, some of us might be able to say, listen, I don't really complain in my trials. And some of us may say, well, you know what? I, I can grip my teeth and endure our trials. Perhaps a very few sanctified among us can say that they usually rejoice in spite of their trials. But friends, how many of us can honestly say with the Apostle Paul that we rejoice in our suffering and glory in our tribulation and so on? See, I think we all have something to learn here, don't we? There's something very profound in this text and yet elusive. Now, if exalting in our trials were our natural human response, you know what we'd see? Multitudes of people rejoicing all the time. Why? Because there's no shortage of suffering in the world. Nobody lacks trials. Instead, what do we find? We find a world full of people complaining about their trials, even among Christians. If we're honest, grumbling is far more common than rejoicing. So, so if we can learn how to rejoice in sufferings, I think we would be very happy people because you and I know we have a lot to be happy about, don't we? If you know Christ, certainly you do. But that's the goal today. But let me be clear right up front before we dive in. The Bible is certainly never teaching us to deny reality. It's not specifically here. 
The Bible's not teaching us to just put on a happy face, pretend we're just wonderful, praising the Lord when we are in fact hurting inside. For example, in Romans chapter 12, Paul instructs us in verse 15 to weep with those who weep. It doesn't say exhort those who weep to rejoice in the Lord. Honestly, when I go into homes of those who've recently encountered loss, do you think the first thing I say to those who are mourning are, you better rejoice in these sufferings? No. Friends, even Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend, and it was proper for him to do so. We should weep together with those who are hurting. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering does not mean denying the pain. However, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a clue to his meaning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, when he describes himself and his companions as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There are two emotions there that are going to come together, and one of those emotions will far outweigh the other. There's nothing wrong with, with sorrow, feeling sorrow, feeling pain or grief in the midst of a trial. Listen, we should not try to deny those feelings in an attempt to be more spiritual. Being joyful in suffering does not mean denying pain. However, we understand that for the Christian, all suffering, trials, and tribulation do bring us something wonderful. Something far more to be desired. Something that brings us joy that far outweighs the pain. I want to tell you something from, from Jim Boyce's commentary on Romans. Jim Boyce, in his commentary, he tells how the church in China grew exponentially in numbers and grace during the intense persecution of the Cultural Revolution. They still are, in fact, growing in numbers in the church in China. He tells them of an American student who was going to study the Chinese church. And before he left the States, another American asked him a question. The American asked him, if God loves the Chinese church so much, why does he allow so much suffering to come upon them? Well, the man didn't know the answer. He didn't know the response. He, he really couldn't say a word. But you see, after he had gone and talked at length with many Chinese Christians, he resolved to go back to America and ask that fellow American a question in return. And the question was, if God loves the American church so much, why hasn't he allowed us to suffer like the church in China? You notice how different that is from our perspective on suffering here in the States? We really are prosperity theologians when it comes to this. Did you know that? We have a propensity to believe in the prosperity gospel when it comes to our suffering. And yet, open the word of God. Every Christian endured various trials to extreme extent. Did God not love the apostles? Certainly he did. So, listen, God uses the sufferings of Christians and his church, hear me, to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. And in fact, our sufferings are an integral part of, of the things that are taught, that we are taught, that work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, listen, as, as strange as this may seem, and I understand it does seem strange, we ought to rejoice in our sufferings. 
and open our eyes to what the Lord is doing in them. So friends, this morning, I'd like for us to do two very great things. First is to consider the joyful purposes of sufferings in us, and then the purpose that God has in store for others in missions. Now, these subjects are great. Too great, in fact, to be covered in a single sermon, much less half of a sermon. But nevertheless, I'd least like to sketch the outlines for you today and hope that you get the point so you can have a new understanding and a new joy when you face trials of any kind. The first point that I have for you in your notes this morning is that Christ was made perfect by the things he suffered and so are we. Christ was made perfect by the things we suffered and so are we. Now that's a line that almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? It does, but it's straight from the Bible. I'm referring, of course, to a text in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where the writer of Hebrews uh, is writing of Jesus, and he's saying this. He's saying, though he was a son, get this, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, obviously, we need a little context there. And just to give you a little comfort in the context, the previous chapter of Hebrews 4 reminds us that Jesus never sinned. And so you must understand, for Jesus, learning obedience never means that he went from disobedience to obedience. No. What it means is he experienced depths of godliness, righteousness, and love that would not have been otherwise demonstrated. He learned obedience in a way that would have not been otherwise demanded and so became a perfect high priest. Made perfect, says the author of Hebrews, by his sufferings. Now it's similar to us, although you and I go from disobedience to obedience. I mean, we know this, right? We, we know how the hammer and the chisel knock off piece by piece of the marble. And, and we say, ow, that's not a pleasant experience for the marble. What is to be joyful of taking blow after blow? But the answer, of course, is wait and see the masterpiece that is going to be crafted in no other way. Church family, as Christians, our suffering, they can bring us many joyful things. In fact, too many things to name in a single sermon. But I do want to list a couple. For example, when the Lord had given Paul an unnamed thorn in his flesh, which Paul repeatedly cried out to the Lord in prayer to take away from him because it hurt, the answer finally came in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In a word, God's universal purpose for all suffering is this. It's more contentment in God's power and grace. It's a less reliance on satisfaction on the, the, this self and the things of this world. And, and if this makes no sense to you, let, let me ask you this. How many times have you heard this testimony? Well, the, the really deep wrestlings in my life have come to me through times of ease and comfort. 
probably not often, right? You probably haven't heard somebody say that often. In fact, Malcolm Muggeridge, a Christian journalist who died back in 1990, he, he once said this. He said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the same time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. This, of course, is, is what the cross of Christ signifies, isn't it? Another man, Samuel Rutherford, said this. He said, that when he was cast into the cellars of affliction, he remembered that the great king always kept his wine there. Spurgeon also spoke on this. He said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Let's go back to the word of God and back to the apostle Paul. Again, I'm telling you, this is everywhere. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says in verse 16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. I, don't, I know you know the history of the apostle Paul. He gives you his history in 2 Corinthians 11. We would not deem his affliction characterize it by the word light. But he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know our military has a program to make people suffer? Did you know that? No, we're not talking about waterboarding or anything like that. No. Boot camp, right? They advertise the pain of boot camp. How many ads have you seen of military recruits straining to make it over the obstacle course? Grimacing, wincing, exhausted, and sweating. And people see that advertisement and say, that's what I want. And they sign up. Why? Because in boot camp, they train you to endure hardship. They give you character. They, give you, they get you up in the middle of the night, make you run laps and do push-ups until your arms feel like jello. They teach you to work as a team when you're tired and upset. They teach you to obey orders when those orders even seem to not make any sense. You learn to trust that the officers know something that you don't. And by following orders, you help achieve a victory. Well, as a Christian, Paul elsewhere says that we need to develop the mentality of a Christian soldier. Friends, if such things were necessary to perfect our Savior for His ministry, how much more so for us to enter into and share the experiences of the Son of God in pain, sorrow, and struggle is nothing less, Paul says, than to join Him and to become like Him. Paul, in, in talking about being joyful in his fruit and suffering, listen, he, he's not minimizing or trivializing pain, sorrow, or struggle that he bore. Paul's life was hard. 
His was a hard life. It's really astonishing what he suffered. It almost seems superhuman how the Lord sustained him. We are not to imagine, however, that in such times that Paul just smiled his way through all the stonings. That he grinned through the whippings he endured. No, we have in Paul's own letters of how sharply Paul felt both the inner sorrow and the physical pain of his life as the Lord's servant. Listen, the joy we're talking about attaining here is not the joy of the joke. It's not the joy of the family board game nights. It's not the joy of a night on the town. It's a joy that comes from a deep sense of happiness from knowing and doing what is right. From pleasing the Lord, walking with Him, and fulfilling the greatest purpose of your life. Now listen, I I know many of you already have an objection for some time in your minds. You might be thinking like I did this week, that Paul's sufferings were of his character. See, most of my struggles and disappointments are very different from the Apostle Paul's. They don't qualify for the kind of sufferings in which you should rejoice. My sufferings are more undane. Mundane, excuse me. I get caught in traffic. I get sick. My children get sick. My marriage is a disappointment. I lost my job. What if my suffering is simply a result of my sin or my foolishness? Then what? Maybe you say those sufferings don't count because they're not related to my sufferings as a Christian and therefore I have no need to rejoice in them. Can I tell you something, church family? I tell you now, every one of your sufferings contributes to your growth and godliness and maturity in Christ. Every one. You know what the beautiful thing about suffering for the Christian? He doesn't waste any of it. There's nothing that you will go through as a Christian that won't be used to make you more like Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I think about the times in my life when I'm walking through day-by-day trials and I think, well, what? this just has no purpose, friends. It all has a purpose and not just a purpose, a glorious purpose because you were created to know God. You were created to become more and more like His Son on this earth and suffering propels us to achieve that. So, of course, we rejoice in everything. Because suffering contributes to your growth and godliness, leading you away from yourself and toward the Lord. And friends, that's what we need. In fact, let me just tell you this. There is nothing, I'm convinced there's nothing that the kingdom of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs more in this hour than godly maturity. Let's be honest. We're a bunch of Christian babes. We really are. In the American church particularly, we have not suffered. I mean, we we suffer light momentary affliction compared to the Apostle Paul and we jet out of here. We can't endure. But friends, I, I feel like it's on the horizon. And you know what? I'm trusting in the Lord to help me rejoice in it. Because you know what I know? The end result is if we endure Trials in this country, in this time, he will guarantee to make us more like Jesus. True Christians will come out on the other side of the sufferings we endure more like their Savior. I promise. When we're afflicted and remain Christ-like friends, 
When we persevere in obedience and love, no matter what, maturity begins to take root in the soul. We begin to live more visibly for Christ in this present world. We're pressed to. And listen, that's not my idea. This is the idea behind Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is talking about how earthly fathers, he says, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our prophet, Jesus for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So he says, endure. Endure hardship as discipline that you may grow up. Hence, the Bible's full of chock full of suffering and affliction. In fact, there is not one significant figure in biblical history who is not a man or woman acquainted with grief. Nearly half of the 150 psalms written, given to us by God, are prayers of the godly in time of trouble. Again and again, we are shown that suffering will be our lot if we are faithfully to follow Jesus Christ in this world. Now, before I move on, I, I give one important caveat before we conclude. And that is, if, if you're here this morning and you are being abused in any way, shape, or form, physically, sexually, whatnot, you should immediately seek help so that the situation would be stopped. Please don't misunderstand me to think that God wants you to be abused in such a way passively from a sexual offender or violent person. A person like that must be brought to the law. Don't, don't put that in this box. Please don't misunderstand my meaning. Understand that God is just in the justifier. He has given us laws in this land so that we can bring about his will. So the evildoer can be punished and the righteous rewarded. And so if you are encountering that, don't sit there and say, well, it must be the will of the Lord in this sense. And so I need to endure this. No, seek the authorities and seek help. That's the caveat. Okay, we only have time to consider one more specific kind of joyful suffering for others. And it's suffering through missions. And, and here's, here's one of the problems I think we have as the American church. When I say missions, we automatically think of overseas. You know that if you're a Christian, you're a missionary? That's part of the problem. When you're a Christian, you're put on mission. Each and every one of you have a mission. It's to proclaim Christ Jesus. It's not just my job. It's all of our jobs. We join this together. We are missionaries for the sake of the gospel. But my second point to you today is just as Christ is made perfect by the things which he suffered, so Christ brought salvation to the world through his suffering as do we. Jesus Christ brought salvation to the world through his suffering and so do we. Jesus Christ, our Savior, was a man of sorrows. Why so? Because suffering was necessary for the salvation of the world. It continues to be necessary even after his great suffering has been accomplished. We are now in a very real way, the Bible says, living his life through which he accomplishes his purposes in the world. So back to our original passage in Colossians chapter 1. You'll notice that Paul says not that he rejoiced in his sufferings, though he says that elsewhere, and it's true in general. But look what he says in verse 24 of Colossians 1. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. This too is another statement that sounds like it's on the brink of heresy, doesn't it? 
How could Paul supply what Christ lacked in his afflictions? I mean, we know that Christ's affliction lacked nothing in regards to redemption, don't we? He points that out in this letter, I might add. This is a strange verse. But I think the book of Philippians actually helps us to explain the mystery of this strange verse. In the book of Philippians, a Christian man named Epaphroditus had, was sent from the Philippian church to bring an offering that had been collected for the apostle Paul. And there's a particular verse in Philippians chapter 2 verse 30 of this man. Um, says Paul, he's talking about Epaphroditus, and he says, Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, interesting enough, this happens to be the only other place where the words Philip and lacking occur together. Well, well, in this other unrelated case, what was lacking in the Philippians' service? There's nothing lacking in their gift. It was everything Paul needed. There's nothing lacking in their love or their willingness to give what was lacking. The only thing that was lacking was the presentation of the love offering to Paul in person. This is a church who wants to give love in the form of money to Paul. So they say of Epaphroditus, represent us and you can complete what is lacking in our service. Nothing lacking except we can't express it in, purpose, in person. So you therefore go and present this to Paul. Friends, I think that best explains Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Because in a similar way, Jesus suffers and dies from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the world. Yet, he leaves the work to be done, doesn't he? Paul's understanding of his mission is that there is but one thing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Nothing lacking in their efficacy or their love, but the love offering must be presented in person to those for whom he died. Paul says, I'm going to present the love offering in person. Friends, that's what we do as missionaries. We're presenting the love offering of the gospel in person. He says, I do this in my sufferings, and then I fill up or complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Do you follow that? You understand? There's something we have which must be presented yet in person. And not even simply the gospel. In order for the gospel to be presented on behalf of Christ and his body, the church, Paul, must personally suffer to present that to the world. And isn't it interesting that if I were to poll and ask you one of the reasons why you don't share the gospel, many of us would come back because I'm afraid of what it would cost me. I'm afraid it might suffer for it. I'm afraid I might lose the respect of the people I love. I'm afraid I might be rejected. And yet Paul says, this is what we must go through in order to present the gospel. Presenting the love offering to the nations in person, even risking his life for them, that they might have the eternal joy, which is Paul's joy itself. Again, nothing lacking in Christ's atonement. The only suffering that lacks are the suffering of the one who will carry the good news to the nations. This is why Paul rejoices, because he comes there not just to suffer, but to bring them eternal joy. And Paul describes the church now as his chief joy. Listen, Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, how Paul describes this church. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 20. 
verse 19 and 20, where he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Again, elsewhere. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Listen, friends, Paul found his greatest joy, which can come through no other means but by suffering for them. The book, Desiring God, uh, Piper puts it this way. He says this. He says, missionaries are not heroes who can boast in great sacrifice for God. They have discovered a hundred times more joy and satisfaction in a life devoted to Christ and the gospel than in a life devoted to frivolous comforts and pleasures and worldly advancements. And they have taken to heart the rebuke of Jesus. Beware of a self-pitying spirit of sacrifice. Missions, he says, is gain a hundredfold. What he's referring to there is Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, where Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. It says, then Peter began to say to them, see, we've left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left how, uh, uh, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, this text does not tell you that you will become rich if you become a missionary, at least not in the sense that your possessions will increase. The point, he says, is if you're deprived of your earthly family in service to Christ, it will be made up a hundredfold in your spiritual family, the church. You are thrown out of one house and then welcomed into a hundred. And even this is far too limiting. Uh, the, the book goes on to say this, uh, Christ makes up himself every sacrifice. John G. Patton, missionary to the new uh, Hebrides, a man who did not find other houses to welcome her there, uh, he gives a beautiful testimony of the friendship and nearness of Christ when he was utterly alone. When he lost his wife and child surrounded by head-hunting natives, at one point, in hiding in a tree, he writes of this, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there uh, live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus." Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? On the 4th of December, 1857, David Livingstone, a great pioneer missionary to Africa, he, he made a stirring appeal to the students of Cambridge University showing 
that he had learned through years of experience what Jesus was teaching Peter. He said this, he said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and helpful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. (laughs) Missions is the way to enlarge our joy and extend it to others. Don't you see that? But Christians, to be honest, we, we really don't make a great impression on others when our lives are very blessed in every way. But you let a man or woman suffer with Christian character with a sense of their eternal and holy purpose, with a bold witness and the sense of great troubles, and it will become a powerful testimony to the world. You've heard of the martyr Polycarp, right? Died in 155. When he was being set to burn, we're told, and all the multitude marveled at the great difference between the unbelievers and the elect. (laughs) In large measure... This explains the triumph of Christianity in these centuries. They triumphed in their sufferings. Listen, it did not merely accompany them on their witness. It demonstrated the truth of it. In conclusion, we are a suffering people. For otherwise, we cannot mature in Christ. Now hear me, you don't have to go looking for suffering. There will be enough of it to serve God's holy purpose in this life. But... We are only to have Paul's attitude when it comes to give it back to God in faith, hope, and love. I want to conclude with a poem that I came across this week that really struck me. It says this, From prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher. From silken self, O captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings. Not thus are spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Can I ask you something this morning? If you walk through sufferings unimaginable in your lifetime, And yet, Christ held you fast and you proclaimed his gospel. Do you not think he'll use that? Do you not think the one who captures every one of your tears in a bottle will not use your proclamation of him in the midst of your trials to bring about his kingdom purposes? And here's the glory, friends. He's modeled it for us. And he goes into it with us. It's not something we do alone. It should be the mark of every one of us here that we are all 
sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because we know what we deserve, and yet we know what we've been given in Christ. Would you stand with me as we close and pray together? Father, help us not to fear suffering. Lord, we, we know that they will come. Indeed, through many tribu- tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We pray that you would give us a wise, mature, and understanding heart as we endure these things. That these things you've sent in our life, that we recognize they are for our good, your glory, and the joy of many. We long for what can be produced in no other way. We long to see that glory being revealed. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to follow the path of Christ and pray that when the sorrows arise in our soul, when we are disquieted and our souls, Lord, are downcast, that you would kindle afresh this truth by your Spirit. That you would seal and reserve this truth in our hearts until that day. And for many, Father, that day is today. Lord, we understand those burdens are close at hand. That there are many in our congregation who are suffering even now. We pray that through these things, they might draw near to you. That as nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That you would conform them into the image of your Son, Jesus. And work all these sufferings for good. Lord, bring in our souls wonderful things that are not worthy to be compared with these light and momentary afflictions. And Father, we pray for the salvation of the nations. We pray that your great name be glorified in every tribe, tongue, people, and language as one day we know it will be. We are thankful for this confidence we have to endure every trial, to give with sacrifice, to endure pain with the comfort of Christ. May your name be praised through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen and amen.